Long before I ever moved into the Palazzo Ferroni Spini, it was one of the buildings of Florence that I had most admired and loved. It stands on the banks of the quiet flowing Arno, on the corner of the Via Tornabuoni, which translated means the Street of Happy Returns, overlooking the Ponte Santa Trinita, until the Germans smashed this most lovely of all Florentine bridges when they retreated during the war. The palace was one of two palaces, belonging to the Ferroni and the Spini families, and it was completed nearly 700 years ago, in 1289. Below the palace, there still stands the well of Dante's Beatrice. I suppose almost everyone must have seen a copy of Holiday's famous painting, Dante's Meeting with Beatrice. It shows the poet leaning on the parapet of the Santa Trinita Bridge, gazing at Beatrice as she passes along with her friends along the Longarno on her way to the well. The Palazzo Ferroni Spini stands on the left of the Longarno, immediately beyond the frame of the picture. Perhaps it is not surprising, therefore, that even on the day when, still an undischarged bankrupt, I studied the owner's demands for the first rent of the space I wished to occupy. The desire came over me that I would like to buy it. I thrust the thought aside. It was a dream. At that moment, my commercial situation was still insecure. As the representative of the owners of the palace, sitting opposite me across the desk, well knew. He watched me intently as I scanned lease and rent demands. The details, I noticed, were further evidence of the confidence trick of business. Because I was a bankrupt, he was asking for three months' rent in advance, plus rent for another month past when I was not occupying the premises. It was a most unusual proposition, and he obviously expected me to bargain. I did not. I signed the lease and paid the money without question, as I laid the cash on the table, I glanced at his face. He was the most astonished man in Florence. He said nothing, but his expression told me he was thinking, how can the fellow do it? He's broke. Yet he has paid me what I asked without quibbling for a second. From that day onward, this man watched my progress with keen interest. He saw me struggle with sanctions and shortages and overcome them. At last I was able to resume paying off the credits still outstanding against my name. Old friends began to rally round again. I had made no new ones because no one chose to be friendly with a person in my commercial position. None, that is to say, except this man from the palace company. Day by day he worked his way deeper into my liking. He would say, You're doing wonderfully well. You are coming up all right. Someday, perhaps you will be all right again. Perhaps it was because I had no one near me in those days, and his interest flattered me, but I thought he was sincere. He appeared to be in genuine awe and admiration of the way in which I was re rehabilitating myself, and after all, no one else was giving me any encouragement. Most of the business people in the city were still watching my progress with a suspicious eye, wondering how long it would be before the rocket, which was soaring skyward with such a dazzling rush, would fall again as a burnt-out stick. This situation lasted for some time. He continued to come to me, praising me, encouraging me, helping me with his words. He gave me great heart. 
Then one day he entered my office and asked if he could have a talk with me. Certainly, I said. Sit down, what is it? He shook his head. Not here, he said. Not in the building, in the middle of your work. This is a matter we should talk over in private. I was surprised and intrigued by his secret of air, so we made an appointment. The start of that interview was like a journey down a stream, which flows this way and that, bending, doubling back upon itself, never seemingly reaching the river of which it is a tributary. But finally we came to the nub of the conversation, which proved to be my financial situation. I was completely frank with him. I liked him and I felt I had no need to be otherwise. I am paying off my creditors, I told him. Up to the present, I have settled well over 60% of my debts. When the total is 100%, the bankruptcy proceedings will be cancelled and I shall be completely free to resume full commerce. Yes, but exactly how much money do you have at present, he asked. Enough to pay my workmen and keep my business going, I said. Anything extra I can put aside goes towards settling my debts. He rubbed his chin and said slowly, Now, Signor Ferragamo, you know me as the owner of the palace. Yes, I said, I know I have been dealing with a company, but I guessed you were the owner, or at least a majority shareholder. I own all the shares in the company, he said, and therefore am the sole owner of the building. Now do you see what is in my mind? No, I said, I don't. Why, Signor Ferragamo, he replied, I would like you to buy the palace. I stared at him. My dear friend, I exclaimed, how in the world do you expect me to buy the building? I have told you already, I have no money. That doesn't make any difference, he said. That's why I asked you all those questions about your financial position. It doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have. I'd simply like you to buy the building. He noticed my incredulous luck because he added, I like you. I like you a great deal. I see you working hard to pull yourself on your feet, and I admire you. I was a hard-working man myself when I was your age, and now that I'm getting on and thinking about disposing of my interests, there is nobody I would rather sell the palace to than you. You don't need to worry about the whys and wherefores. I'll find a way which to enable you to buy it. I'd like to hear the plan, I said. Simply this, he replied. I'll work out conditions for which, if you give me a little cash, you can pay the remainder of the cost in installments out of your profits. You won't notice it. But I must pay my creditors first, I said. No, you have paid them enough for the time being, he said. It is better that you suspend payments to them and buy the building. Why, it will be a direct asset. With a building like that, you can always raise a mortgage and pay your creditors that way. The essential thing is to own it. For a moment, out of his insistence and my own longing to possess the palace, I felt the thrill of ownership. For a second it seemed as though the palace was already mine. Then reality returned. It was time to end this interview. So our meeting terminated with a flood of promises on his part, and a vague reply from me that I would think it over, 
and if I saw any possibility of negotiating the deal, I would let him know. A short time went by, and he approached me again, without waiting for my decision. In the meantime, I had spoken to my lawyer, whose advice was, let him draft in writing what scheme he has in his mind, send it to me, and I will give you an opinion. Until we know what is in his mind, we can do nothing. Now I told the owner that I would like to see his scheme, and soon afterwards he presented me with a draft, which I showed at once to my lawyer. His reply was emphatic. Don't you dare give a cent to that fellow. Under this agreement, you have to pay the installments at a given time on a given day each month. If you miss one payment, even if it is the final payment, he can take every lira you have paid and still keep the building. You will lose everything and gain nothing. I thanked the lawyer. The owner I put off with remarks that I was thinking about it. I was determined that whatever I did, I would not put a cent into anything until all my creditors were paid off. A year went by, and longer. The bankruptcy proceedings lingered on, although I had now paid every creditor except one. This man I fought as well as I could. I knew the money he claimed was not honestly due to him, but I also knew it was useless to go to the judge in bankruptcy and present him with my receipts unless every bill was settled. Eventually I had no alternative but to pay that final creditor, and pay him in full, plus interest from the date of bankruptcy. Then at last I was clear. I presented my legal receipts to the judge, and was freed of all stigma. Once again, I was a free man commercially. I had no spare money, but I was free my debts paid. If suspicions about my commercial soundness still lingered in some quarters, they did not worry me. Now I could turn at last to the future and prove to the world that I was stronger and sounder than I had ever been. Therefore, I would buy the palace. I told my lawyer that I had made up my mind to buy the Palazzo Ferroni on the terms of the owner's draft contract. His reply was short and to the point. You're a fool, he said. You mustn't do it. You will lose your money. You won't be able to keep up the payments. I ignored his well-meant advice. I had reviewed the matter in my mind and had decided that the contract offered me plenty of time to pay at the rate my business was developing. In any case, if I was making a mistake, I would make it with my eyes open and of my own free will. I had paid a great deal of money to creditors in settlement of false claims. Now I would make a bid for my future. If I lost, I would at least go down fighting. I saved up a hundred thousand liras and went with it to the owner of the palace. I am ready to sign the agreement, I told him. I have here a hundred thousand liras as first payment. He objected. He wanted a first payment of 200,000 liras. I told him frankly, it is impossible, I have not got it. Finally he said, Very well, Signor Ferragamo, I will trust you absolutely. I don't know how he could mistrust me, since the contract made the conditions absolutely clear. The total price was 3,400,000 liras, about $180,000 of which a little less than two million lira 
were on a mortgage running until about 1970. I was required to pay the remaining 1,500,000 liras in nine monthly installments, an average of nearly 170,000 liras a month. The cash to be paid at 10 o'clock on the morning of the last day of each calendar month. Actually, the earlier payments were below the average and the later ones rose in proportion. The payments were to be made through a bank, the Credito Italiano, which would hold the company's share certificates until the final payment had been made, when the documents would be handed over to me. If I failed on any payment, even by a day, all the money I had paid would be forfeited, and I would have no claim on any part of the building or any shares in the company. It was a gamble, but I was gambling on myself. I knew my strength, my capabilities, my production. Sanctions had ended, and I was once more in an expanding export market. I felt that nothing could stop me as long as I could work, and work I did, all day and every day, from early morning until long after midnight, the lights burned in my rooms in the palace. And then, in September 1937, the fascist government attacked the Jewish people. In a vitriolic speech, Mussolini accused them of being the architects of Italy's difficulties and told them to leave the country. The speech rightly angered Jewish people all over the world, and I felt the repercussions immediately. Many of the stores through which my export trade was handled were operated by Jewish-owned businesses, and now they refused to buy. All Italian goods were boycotted. Members of Jewish organizations carrying banners demonstrated outside shop windows. But there was no personal animosity against me. On the contrary, many people pleaded with me to remove my headquarters from Italy and go to England, America, anywhere which would take me from the fascists, their wars and their words. A committee was formed of Americans and British people who were prepared to give me the money to pay the costs of my removal if I would establish myself in Switzerland. I had to refuse. My life was making my shoes in my own country, and I had to pay my own bills. If there were difficulties, I must accept the challenge and try to overcome them. Once again, the wedgies came to my assistance. They formed a huge proportion of my output. And so great was the demand that by once more concentrating hard on the Italian market and switching my cancelled export orders to those houses overseas which were still begging to do bigger and bigger business with me, I did surmount them. And so, despite the setback, I was able to walk down to the bank each month on the required day at the required time and transfer the money due for the payment of the Palazzo Ferroni from my account to the owner. He waited on the steps of the bank on each instalment day and when he saw me coming his eyes would light up and he would say You have the money my dear boy wonderful wonderful I knew you could do it what did I tell you hm you're a brilliant fellow I was certain that whatever your position you were doing very well I'm glad to be able to tell all my friends that I am right and they are wrong So the months passed and the payments increased I drew great courage and comfort from the owner's words. At last, I thought, here is one man who has faith in me. Even now, 
Though my debts were paid and my business was flourishing, the suspicion lingered. My bankers made no approach to me. My credit was still insecure. This man alone, of all people, trusted me and had faith in me. I paid the seventh instalment, and then the eighth. On the day appointed for the payment of the eighth instalment, I saw a change in the owner's manner. He was less enthusiastic than usual and did not compliment me on my ability to keep up the payments. He saw the money transferred in silence. The last day came. In the past, I had always waited until the final few minutes before ten o'clock, but on this day, I went down to the bank an hour earlier. He was there. I saw him while I was still some way off, standing on the steps, waiting. When he saw me coming along the crowded sidewalk, he clapped his hand against his forehead and stepped forward agitatedly to meet me. My dear boy, did you bring the money? he asked. Yes, I said. I have the money with me, the full payment. My God, he said. Then you've got the building. Of course, I replied, eyeing him curiously. I have bought it and paid for it. What else do you expect me to do? But that's something I never expected you to do, he exclaimed. His face was almost comic in its frustration, vexation and despair. But my dear good friend, I said, horrified and bewildered at the implication behind his words, what do you mean? I have paid you the money. What more do you want? You don't understand, he said. I never believed you could pay. Everyone convinced me you could not pay. I betted you could not pay. I even betted you would not reach the eighth installment. Now I have lost all my bets and the building, which I didn't want to sell. He wrung his hands. I was so certain you could not do it. I stood outside the building and saw you with the lights on at midnight and later. You were working so hard I felt certain you would wreck your health before the last payment was due. I walked past him in sick silence and went into the bank. We signed the transfer on my final instalment and the deeds were given to my ownership. The palace was mine. Outside the bank, the full meaning of that man's attitude came home to me suddenly, dimming the glory of the knowledge that I now owned the Palazzo Ferroni. My God, I thought, if I had failed to make one payment, just one payment, absolutely on the nail, he would have had no mercy, and I had thought him my good friend. Then I thought, he does not know what he has done for me, giving me all the encouragement I needed to keep on and keep on through the long days and nights. I thought, too, there is someone who is near who guides our footsteps to work the good things if we are his followers. I was God's follower. I obey his will today, as in those days, and as in my boyhood times. Then did the revelation of my success sweep over me with a tremendous force. I stood in the street of happy returns and looked at the palace, my palace, with feelings of wonder and triumph. And, 
of a happiness I cannot speak. At this time, my family and I were living in an apartment on the Amerigo Vespucci, overlooking the Arno, which, though pleasant, was too small for so many people. So within one month of buying the Palazzo Ferroni, in the middle of 1938, I began to look for a villa of my own. I had firm ideas for the sort of villa I wanted. It must face south to the sun. It must not be in Florence itself, but among the hills that look down on the city. It must be secluded yet easy of access. And it must have some land. In the little time I have been able to spare from shoemaking, I have always loved farming. My family were strenuously opposed to any such venture. Why do you bother yourself, they asked. Must you always have something to worry about? You have no cash, and you will have to go on working hard to pay for the villa when you can find the one you want. Lay off, be calm and take a rest. Keep out of new obligations until you can put the money down for one that you want to buy. I did not listen. I had to have the villa. One day I walked up to the Piazzale Michelangelo on the south side of the city and looked across at the hill on which stands the village of Fiesole, that ancient Etruscan town of which Florence was a colony in the early centuries after the birth of Christ, and which in turn became a colony of Florence. I scanned the hillside until I had located the precise geographical area I considered ideal. A little more than halfway up the hill, one by one I picked out the villas which stood there. Some I had already seen, Others I saw now for the first time but did not quite like, and then I saw it, the villa I wanted. It was isolated and high, but not too high. It was far away, but not too far. A beautiful park lay spread upon its shoulder, and before it lay a wide space with the land falling sharply away, so that there was no obstruction of the view of Florence. I lowered my binoculars. This was the villa for me. If only I could buy it. I started to investigate the position. I discovered that the villa was called Il Palagio and that it had a long and fascinating history. Built in the 13th century, at about the same time as the Palazzo Ferroni, it had originally been the fortress of the village of Maiano. It is believed that Michelangelo remodeled it 200 years later when it became the summer palace of the wealthy Strozzi family. The quarry from which ben Benedetto de Maiano took the stone for the Palazzo Strozzi, the family city palace which dominates the Via Tornabuoni, can still be seen on the property. One sunny day I made a pilgrimage to Il Palagio. The owner and his wife were away, but a servant allowed me to roam the terrace and later permitted me to go inside and look over its thirty rooms. The visit told me that I had made no mistake in my long-range assessment. It was as beautiful, as charming, as perfect for my desires as I had hoped. The servant saw my eager glances and said, What do you think of the place, sir? I instantly replied, If it was for sale, I would buy it. He shook his head dubiously. I don't think these people will sell, he said. They bought it only two years ago and have done a lot of work to improve it. I'm sure they won't sell. At least, I've never heard them mention it. He and his wife love the place. 
Undeterred, I visited a friend of the owner, a man I knew well. Casually, I mentioned how beautiful the villa was and how lucky his friend was to own it. He said, yes, it is beautiful, but it's too bad. My friend loves the place, but his wife prefers to stay in Florence, right in the city where she has lived all her life. I'm afraid my friend is not happy with the idea. He likes the villa and won't give up on it for anything in the world. I came to my point. Is there no chance of buying it? I asked. I want a place to live, and I don't want to live in the Palazzo Ferroni because that is my place of work. I know myself. I work hard and like to have a reason for going home at lunchtime and in the evening. Otherwise, I would never leave my workroom. He looked thoughtful. I can try, he said. Let me work on it, and I'll tell you if there is a chance. The response was that there was a chance, but only if the owner could get his price. The moment he knew I was after it, he pushed his price up quite a bit more than the villa was worth. In fact, I had many other villas offered to me at less than half his price, but I wanted Il Palagio. All efforts to persuade him to bring down his price failed, and at last, with my friend and a solicitor, I drove over to see him. Finally, we negotiated the deal, and the money question arose. I asked for conditions which would allow me time to pay. The owner refused. I'm sorry, he said, but the only reason why I am selling is so that I can buy a farm. My wife can then stay in our apartment in Florence, and I can go back and forth to the farm. I did not know how I could pay for the villa, but I gave him a deposit and the deal was clinched. Nobody could take Il Palagio away from me now. Unless, of course, I failed to raise the balance of the purchase price. I decided that I must temporarily relax my rule about not borrowing, and the next day I went to my bank. The first time I had seen them on business of this sort for the longest period I can remember. I asked if they would lend me the difference between the money I had managed to save while the negotiations were going on and the full purchase price. Yes, the manager said. We could work out a deal of that kind if you are willing to put up your palace as security. How long would you give me to pay? I asked. On a deal like this? Six months. At the end of that period, if 50% of the loan has been repaid, we could probably give you an option for an extension of the remainder of the credit. I did not hesitate. I took the money and I bought the villa. In four months, I had repaid the bank loan and regained the shares of the palace. Within a few years, I had also paid off the two million liras mortgage on the palace, and Il Palagio and the Palazzo Ferroni were utterly and completely mine. The effect of my purchases was interesting, amusing and even ludicrous and proved that my lesson in business had been well learned. My bankers no longer avoided me, but approached me in a friendly spirit. The director even apologized for being unable to help me at the time of my bankruptcy. If I had been the director then, he said, I might have been able to help you avoid the crash. Private individuals found the situation fascinating. People who had not spoken to me for years found ways of reopening old acquaintance. People I had never known accosted me in the street as my friends. My wealth was computed at an immense figure. I was a multi-millionaire. I was one of the richest men in Italy. The palace and the villa belonged to me. They are part of my life and my work.
yet they have no intrinsic value for me as they have for others. It is enough that I can work in the palace and relax in my home.